Scripture shapes the lives of millions of people around the world, yet scriptures, both the Bible and the Quran, only gain meaning when they are interpreted by the human mind. Minding Scripture, a podcast from the Department of Theology at the University of Notre Dame, explores the meeting of reason with the scriptures of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. I am Gabriel Said Reynolds, Professor of Islamic Studies and Theology in the World Religions World Church Program at Notre Dame. And joining me on Minding Scripture are Professor Francesca Murphy. Welcome. Hello. And Professor Munim Suri. Hi. Good to be with both of you again. Now, on Minding Scripture, we often discuss what the Bible and the Quran teach us to believe. And today we will discuss something a bit different, what the Bible and the Quran teach us to do. Both scriptures have a conception that God not only delivers teaching or doctrine, but also instructions on how to worship him, how to seek forgiveness for sins, how to advance spiritually, including things from fasting on Yom Kippur to walking around or to be a bit more fancy, circumambulating the Kaaba and prayer in Islamic tradition. So what are the rituals of the Bible and the Quran and why do they matter? These are the questions before us in this episode of Minding Scripture. And I'm going to start with Francesca and with the question of the relationship of Jewish tradition surrounding the temple and the church and Christian tradition, the notion of sacred space. As um, our listeners may know in the Bible, there are three pilgrimage festivals found in the Hebrew Bible in the book of Exodus. One of those is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And these are times in which the ritual had to be carried out traditionally in Jerusalem at the temple. You couldn't do it back home. So it was a pilgrimage uh, festival. And of course, um, the tradition of Judaism changes dramatically around the destruction of the first and then the second temple. So I wanted to ask about sacred space, Francesca, in uh, Judaism with the temple and maybe how that changes with the rise of rabbinic Judaism, but also a comparative question. What, what is the Christian notion of the church? Um, how do we distinguish between the central place of the temple as a house of God in Judaism and the Christian notion of church? Is it just a gathering place? Is it more than that? Does it include somehow... Uh, a, a notion of the dwelling of the divine therein. I don't know if that question is good enough to start us off, but you have thoughts on that, Francesca? The temple was first built by Sam, but sorry, by by Solomon, according to uh, to Samuel, and later when the Babylonians um, overran. Um, Israel, they um, they destroyed the temple, and all Jews were sent into exile in Babylon. And arguably, uh, that's the beginning. Uh, it's kind of like a proto-Rabbinic um, Judaism because they have to keep the law outside of outside of outside of Jerusalem. And um, they have to, like, purity regulations and so on become what defines them as Jews. And then under the Persian emperor Cyrus, the Jews were allowed to return and they built the second temple. So Judaism starts up again as a sacrificial religion. But already in the second temple period, 
you have priests, sacrificing priests as one element, but then also Pharisees, um, whose central emphasis is on keeping the oral Torah. So uh, Judaism is already developing uh, what came about when they were in exile in Babylon. They're developing the seeds of rabbinic Judaism. And then with the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 AD, uh, Judaism uh, brings to fruition what it first learned in in Babylon um, in the 6th century BC, which is about how to be a religion without a spatial center and without sacrifice. Um, And um, I think that Jerusalem remains, in some sense, the heart of of religious Judaism, but they learn to do without temple sacrifice. And since returning to the spiritual heart, um, they haven't actually reinstituted temple sacrifice yet. I think that sometimes some rabbis talk about it, but they actually haven't reinstituted temple sacrifice. But still, uh, making the return to Jerusalem has become absolutely central now that it's possible for Jews. Okay, and I'm just that's the absolute limits of my knowledge about Judaism. Now, within Christianity, there is no spatial or cosmological center, right? Because um, churches, all Christian churches, faced east. But what that is supposed to symbolize is facing the resurrection. Um, the, it's, it, the rising of Christ in the east is like the rising of the sun in the east. So there's a minor, a mild, tiny cosmological element. But essentially, it's about facing into the resurrection of Christ. So uh, there is no spatial center within Christianity in the same way that there still is in Judaism. Um, churches are sacred spaces. Catholic churches are sacred spaces because uh, the Eucharist is there, but they're not sacred spaces in any um, anthropological or uh, religious studies sense, I don't think. Um, Now, administratively, for Catholics, Rome is a center. And in orthodoxy, you have other centers like Moscow and Athens where the patriarchs went. Uh, That's historical because Peter went to Rome. Uh, But I don't think that religiously, spiritually speaking, Rome is a spatial heart of Christendom, like a a new Jerusalem. It's not. Um, So I think that uh, Christianity is spatially acentric. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, so there are two dimensions there, I think, in your answer. One in regard to sort of cosmology and sort of a, a cosmic center of one's spirituality, but the other is the, the building itself and whether it acts as something more than a gathering space. And we'll return to that question. I, I, I thought I'd ask Munim sort of about both aspects there. And they involve first the Kaaba in Mecca, the building covered with a black cloth that 
many of our listeners will know from the dramatic images of pilgrims circumambulating. And so, uh, does does the the Kaaba? I believe in the Quran, it's well, it's referred to as the Kaaba, but also as the Beit, the house, uh, understood to be the house of God in some ways. Uh, how, how would you compare it to the notion of the of a temple, or maybe the Jerusalem Temple in particular? And then maybe we could follow up speaking about the mosque vis- vis-a-vis the church. But let's start with the Kaaba. Could you basically introduce us to the Kaaba? Sure, yeah. Um, for Muslim, the Kaaba is a sacred place. It is perhaps one of the most, if not the most, sacred, you know, sacred spot on earth. So um, at least there are two Islamic rituals that are connected to this sacred space. One is the pilgrimage, as you just mentioned. And the other one is a prayer. Because the Kaaba is the direction to which Muslims face in their prey. So the name Kaaba. And that's, is, just, sorry to interrupt, sure. but that's, I mean, this is a requirement uh, at least for the, the canonical prayer five times a day that you do your best. I, I think it's intention probably that matters the most, but you do your best to face, face Mecca and specifically the Kaaba. Wherever you are, whether you're in South Bend, Indiana, or uh, in the Middle East, or Indonesia, or. Yeah. So the direction is not toward um, either east or west, but rather toward the Kaaba. Wherever you are, uh, you should face toward the Kaaba in your prayer. So uh, the, the term Kaaba itself occurs in the Quran. Uh, the name Kaaba is often explained as indicating its uh, cubic form because you know it's 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 look like uh, you know a, a cube there. Um, and, and, and occurred twice in the Quran in the context of pilgrimage. So um, in chapter 5, uh, verse 95 and 97, the Quran uh, mentioned the word Kaaba in the context of, of, of pilgrimage. There are other terms also uh, used in the Quran, as you just mentioned, the word bait is used uh, in the Quran and is often understood by um, scholars as referring to the Kaaba. Um, as you know that in the you know w- one of the shortest chapter in the Quran is called Surat Quraysh, uh, in which the word bait is used there. Falyabudu uh, bait. So worship the Lord of this house. So the word bait uh, can can be rendered as house. Um, as 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 as, as for the context of prayer, the Quran does not use the term Kaaba as the direction as the direction of prayer, but rather the term Al Masjid Al Haram, which is the sacred mosque. So uh, Muslim scholars try to reconcile between the two terms, uh, in the sense that you know that the mosque in which the Kaaba is located is the direction of the prayer. So the Quran used the term, um, uh, uh, it is in, in, in chapter 2, uh, verse 149, in which the Quran says, uh, Wherever you go, you should face uh, toward the Masjid Al-Haram, the sacred mosque. So and therefore the word al masjid al haram is often referred to not the Kaaba itself uh, but rather um, the mosque in which the Kaaba is located. So can I follow up to ask just about the building, sure. the, the Kaaba? 
because Francesca was speaking about the temple in Jerusalem, which, at least in the biblical accounts, is uh, there's one scene where a prophet sees the temple um, being filled with the glory of God, mm-hmm. and um, there were there were particular restrictions about entering into the temple, only certain people at certain times, yeah. and um, so uh, is the Kaaba analogous to that? Um, it's probably theologically quite complicated, but uh, if, so let me ask more theoretically: Does God somehow dwell in the Kaaba? And then more practically, can anyone enter into the Kaaba? Do you know are the restrictions about who can actually go inside the building? Because my understanding is it it does have a door; it's possible to go inside. Any thoughts on that? Well, the, the, traditionally, you know, uh, Muslim would not understand. You know, would not say that that God. Uh, dwell in the Kaaba, mm-hmm. but rather the Kaaba is often uh, un- understood as the house of God. Um, in 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 the second occurrence of the word Kaaba in the Quran, uh, in chapter five, verse uh, ninety-seven, the Quran refers to the Kaaba as the sacred house. So Allahu al-Kaaba al-Bayt al-Haram, kiyaman linnasi wa amnan. So God made the Kaaba. The sacred house as a means of support for people and security. So this is something perhaps similar to the idea of temple as just mentioned, that whoever entered the Kaaba, they will be saved. So the word Amnan there perhaps well, maybe it's, it's theologically speaking it's not it's not similar to the idea of temple in Christian in in, 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 in Christianity and Judaism, but rather um, you know the emphasis on um, how important is the Kaaba? You know, whoever entered the Kaaba, they will be safe. They will be secure. That the word Amen uh, can, can be understood there. Great. Okay. So, um, Francesca, maybe we can turn to. Um, I'm just this, looking at yes. what it says. It's in. It's actually in one Kings chapter eight. I thought it was in two Samuel, and that's wrong. It's in one Kings chapter eight. And, Where the temple is filled um, with the divine presence. Yeah, right? I'm just yeah. You mentioned that, and I'm just looking at it. And um, so, what happens is that Solomon spends seven years building the temple, and then thirteen years building his palace. Um, and he prays for the spirit of the Lord to come down on the temple, and. Um, Okay, we better move forward because I'm not seeing where the Spirit of the Lord comes into the temple. But there's also the vision of Isaiah, right, Francesca, and Isaiah 6, of uh, where Isaiah sees, um, has a, some sort of theophany or some vision of God sitting on his, his throne and his robe filling but the But I don't think that's supposed to say anything about the temple as a sacred space. Okay. Not to my knowledge. Okay. Well, so I, I the temple... It was also, of course, not just a place where God somehow dwelled spiritually, uh, but also a place of sacrifice. Um, of course, initially, before the temple was built by Solomon, um, there was the tabernacle, which was moved from place to place, first in the wanderings and then throughout the land of Canaan. And that's a whole saga that plays out in the books of Samuel and Kings. Uh, but the Passover sacrifice is associated with the temple. And for Christians, of course, um, 
the central ritual is the Eucharist, which I think it's fair to say, but correct me, Francesco, if I get this wrong, I mean, can be understood as a, uh, a, a, a transformation of the Passover ritual with Christological meaning. Um, could, could we turn to that topic? I mean, yes, could you I introduce mean, us to the Eucharist? Christianity does not have any rituals. I think it's very important and it's very misleading to describe the Eucharist as a central ritual within Christianity because Christianity has no rituals. Um, Catholicism has seven sacraments, as does orthodoxy. Uh, Protestantism has two sacraments. But I think if you look in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, you won't find the statement that the central ritual is the Eucharist. I don't know if you'll find any kind of discussion of rituals. Sacraments are not rituals. They're sacraments. A sacrament is a visible sign of an invisible action whereby the participant is made holy. And there's a debate amongst Catholics about which is the greatest sacrament. And Thomas Aquinas thinks that uh, the Eucharist is the greatest sacrament. Other people think penance is the greatest sacrament. Uh, it's, you can discuss that, but no, no Catholic scholar, and I doubt any Orthodox scholar, and certainly no Protestant scholar, would describe these actions as rituals. And so if we think of them as sacraments, not as rituals, could you um, introduce us a bit more to the Eucharist and how it's connected yeah, to Passover? The purpose of the sacrament is to unite us with Christ. So the debate about which is the greatest sacrament is a debate about um, which, um, which sacrament most unites us with Christ. See, rituals, as I understand them, they are actions in some way which uh, you keep on and on repeating them. I mean, Freud describes religion in these terms, right? Freud describes uh, rituals as neuroses, as things which people constantly repeat and they think they're going to purify or achieve some goal through the repetition of these actions. And um, I'm, I'm, I don't see why a Christian shouldn't be entirely on board with those that kind of description of ritual. Whereas a sacrament, all seven sacraments, derive from Christ saying, do this. Right. right? So uh, in the context of the Eucharist, he um, at the at the at his Passover, his Last Supper, which he perhaps most probably, according to Jumpy Meyer and Cardinal Ratzinger, was not actually a Passover meal, but he kind of made it into a Passover meal. Okay. And he um, he takes the bread and the wine, and then he says, "Do this in remembrance of me." So that's the beginning of the sacrament of the Eucharist. And then uh, the resurrected Christ in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, tells the apostles um, uh, he's giving them power to forgive sins. So that's the beginning of the sacrament of penance. So all of these sacraments originate from Jesus telling people to do certain things. They're not rituals. 
they're simply responses to divine injunction intended to unite us with Christ. That's the very person beautiful. who the origin of the sacrament. Right. And um, I wanted to follow up in particular uh, with the Eucharist by um, just reading a passage from one of Paul's letters, 1 Corinthians 11, um, and asking for your thoughts on concerns for eating or participating in the Eucharistic host and Eucharistic cup worthily. So Paul says, this is verses 26 and 27, Whenever you eat this bread then, and drink this cup. You are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, anyone who eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily is answerable for the body and blood of the Lord. I think this is one of the texts that's cited when it comes to concerns about participating or not participating in the Eucharist. Um, anyway, do you have, have thoughts on, on these, these questions? Uh, I don't think yes, it's I mean, really a question of purity law. Yes, I made famous the expression, the Eucharist makes the church. The point of communication in the Eucharist is to be united with Christ in the body of Christ. The, the, the Eucharist unites us with Christ in the whole body of Christ, in the whole church. So that um, de Lubac repeated this medieval phrase, the Eucharist makes the church. Mm. And John Paul quoted that in his encyclical Ecclesia Dei Eucharistia. And um, I think the point about, say, for example, the most famous uh, way in which uh, restrictions on participation in the Eucharist is perhaps that um, churches which are not uh, together technically at the present time um, cannot receive the Eucharist in one another's um, church buildings. So Protestants cannot receive the Eucharist except under special conditions with special permission from the Pope in Catholic churches. And I think Orthodox don't allow Catholics to receive the Eucharist in Orthodox churches. So this is a division of, of Christendom corresponding to the division of the body of Christ uh, since the schism between Catholics and Orthodox and then since the Reformation. So these kinds of restrictions on who can receive the Eucharist always go back to the question of the body of Christ and membership in the body of Christ. And um, when they want to be more flexible about who can receive the Eucharist, they will always say, well, these people really are members of the body. You just can't see it. Right. Um Right. It all comes down to membership of the body of Christ. Right. And if you are fully a membership of the a member of the body of Christ, you can receive the Eucharist. So it all comes down to legal boundaries of the church and the bodies of Christ. Right. So when you, body of Christ. in in Does Islam there's not a system of sacraments per se, although maybe you have thoughts on that. Um, uh, there are concerns, however, with uh, with Pure, questions of purity and participation in, in ritual, for example, in canonical. Yeah, I don't think it's at all a question about purity. It's no, no, not I'm speaking about Islam now, Francesca. It's a question about membership in the body. Oh, right. To totally. Yeah, I just meant to say that... Uh, it's like, I can't vote in America 
because I'm not an American citizen. Right. Yes. It's not about purity. There's not something wrong with me, you know, because I'm not an American citizen, but I can't participate in the in the in the thing. Right, right. But I'm, I'm speaking now about Islam. And in Islam, oh, although you feel free to correct me, Munim, if I'm getting this wrong, there, there are concerns uh, with with purity. For example, ablutions mm-hmm. are necessary, I understand, before prayer. And um, there are certain times when a woman, for example, if she's menstruating, I believe, should, should not uh, enter into a mosque. But correct me if I'm getting that wrong or maybe yeah. not participate in yeah. formal congregational prayer. Uh, so could, could you speak about... What are the conditions for participating in ritual in Islam? Yeah, um, a purity, both physical and spiritual, is essential to Islamic rituals, at least some of them. Um, as we know that a pilgrim must be in state of purity while performing their uh, pilgrimage activities. So also those who perform prayer must be, uh, 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 you know, uh, spiritually, uh, uh, you know, purified. So, um, as, as you mentioned earlier, the, the term um, ablution or wudu um, in Arabic is, uh, is condition uh, uh, for prayer. Um, there are several references, both in the Quran, in the later Islamic tradition or hadith, uh, referring to the importance of uh, purity. Uh, for instance, um, it is uh, stated in the Quran that God loves repentant and those who uh, purify in Allah yuhibbut tawabin wa yuhibbul mutatahhirin um and and you know this issue of purity is uh, discussed in greater detail uh, in Islamic law as as we know that uh, Muslim jurists uh, you know deal with this issue in in specific chapter uh, it's called at-tahara uh, you know deal with the issue of right. of purity right. uh, but the you know the, the, this question of purification is not only about spiritual aspect, but also a physical one, and this is you know you know the, the, the issue where the question of mosque perhaps relevant. Um, of course, you know uh, uh, valid prayer can be performed um, after ablution virtually everywhere um, using perhaps minimal you know marking, but uh, we also know from the history that the prophet himself built a mosque. So there is no reference in the Quran that uh, menstruating women cannot enter mosque, but this issue can be found in the hadith or prophetic statement okay. in which okay. the prophet is reputed to have said that I don't permit women in her means or person in the state of major ritual impurity to enter a mosque. Although, you know, among legal scholars, there is disagreement among them whether women uh, in, in their menstruation can enter mosque or right. not. So it could apply to men as well who have not done the ghusl or the major, the major ablution after certain actions. Right. Okay. Right. Yes, you're right. If Christianity had regulations like that, you couldn't go into church to say confession. I see. If you wanted to make a confession, you wouldn't be able to go into church to do it because you would be ritually impure. Interesting. So um, I don't think it makes sense to think in terms of Paul's statement in Corinthians as as analogous to having a purity regulation within Christianity. Right, right. Yeah, I because, yeah. 
Yeah, I, I agree completely. And uh, Mooney, maybe just a final thought, sure. and then we'll take a break. Uh, so, um, I mean, the word mosque uh, means a, a place of prostration. prostration. Sometimes another word is used other than masjid, namely jama, which yeah. alludes to a place of congregation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, I don't know, there's probably a debate over this, but do you see a mosque principally as a place of congregation, just simply a gathering space where people can pray collectively? Or uh, does it have a sacred space? I mean, for example, you remove your shoes before you enter a mosque, so there is something of sacredness about the space. Do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, linguistically, mosque or masjid in Arabic is a place for prostration. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, that um, anyone who you know who who has already purified themselves through ablution can perform their prayer virtually everywhere. So. Um, a mosque is basically a place for um, for prayer in, con- in, in con- congregation. Um, there is a, a place or island in, in Indonesia is called the Island of Thousand Mosques because okay. there are so many mosques in the island, okay. perhaps similar to a church in South Bend. So you, you <laughs> find a church everywhere in South That's Bend. Right. So in Indonesia, uh, the island of Lombok is known as the, the Island of Thousand Mosques because Everywhere you go, you will find a mosque, a beautiful mosque. Even perhaps, you know, in terms of number, more than people there. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, wonderful. Well, we're going to turn to other questions of ritual and sacrament. In the second half, we'll be looking at things like uh, pilgrimage, the Hajj ritual, and Islam fasting. So uh, don't go anywhere, but take this time in our break to review and rate Minding Scripture, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Mining Scripture. I'm Gabriel Said Reynolds. I'm here with Professor Francesca Murphy and Professor Muniam Suri. We're speaking about ritual and sacrament as they have their sources in the Bible and the Quran and as they play roles in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. We were just speaking about the mosque with, with Munim. Uh, there are, as many of our listeners will know, five pillars of Islam, according to a very famous hadith, and um, prayer is only one of them, there are others, and uh, among them is the pilgrimage, or the hajj, which, um, uh, well, you can introduce us to uh, the the foundations of it, maybe, Munim, and the reason why um, it becomes one of the five um, pillars, and maybe also the the connection to Eid al-Adha, one of the two major Muslim uh, feasts. So, yeah, could you speak about those those topics? Sure. Yes. Uh, so, Hajj or pilgrimage is one of the five pillars in Islam, along with prayer, uh, fasting, and am giving. So, um, so Hajj or pilgrimage is basically a journey to Mecca, the sacred place, along with ritual activities that pilgrim perform there. Um, and, 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 and the word hajj uh, occur in the Quran several times. Uh, hajj is often understood as a greater pilgrimage. Uh, and uh, oftentimes people distinguish between hajj and umrah. Umrah right. is often understood as right. lesser, lesser uh, pilgrimage. Uh, but whatever term we use, whether hajj or 
umrah, perhaps the word, the, the Arabic, uh, the, the, the English term pilgrimage might not uh, capture the, the essential aspect of Hajj because pilgrimage is often focused on journey. Well, yes. the emphasis for uh, Hajj is not on journey itself, but rather the ritual activities that pilgrims perform while they they were in Mecca. So, of course, you know, you know, uh, people um, came to Mecca from long distance. Uh, they spend hours on airplane. But the emphasis is not on the journey itself. But what you do when you're there. The, the ritual, <laughs> yes. But yeah. the, the ritual, the, the activities, you know, circumambulating the Kaaba or uh, running f- uh, from two places, from Sofa and Marwa, uh, performing ritual in uh, a few places, in Muzdalifa, in, uh, in, um, uh, uh, in, in, in other places as well. Um, the Hajj itself can be done only in five days. Um, on the third day, known as the day of sacrifice. So this is the time when Muslims, not only pilgrim, but literally Muslim everywhere in the world, celebrate the, the day of sacrifice, Eid al-Adha, literally a festival of sacrifice. This is on the third day of the pilgrimage, right. in which uh, you know pilgrim uh, sacrifice animal uh, before you know ending the the ritual itself. So, and uh, maybe just to follow up on that sure. specific point of of the sacrifice, and then we'll turn back to pilgrimage with Francesca. But uh, the, as you mentioned, the sacrifice could be performed or should be performed by Muslims around the world. Yeah. Uh, my understanding is that it's connected to the um, the sacrifice that Abraham carried out mm-hmm. uh, when God provided an animal in place of his own son, right. which may be Ishmael or Isaac, probably the majority of Islam says Ishmael or Ismail yeah. in, in Arabic. Uh, but the sacrifice, is it seen as having a sort of redemptive character? Does it lead to atonement or forgiveness of sins? Um, or would you explain it otherwise? Yeah, um, there are, you know, uh, uh, several hadiths, uh, you know, referring to the spiritual benefit of sacrifice. Uh, one hadith that I can remember of that, you know, whoever performs sacrifice, they will be forgiven of their sin. So uh, certainly, the you know sacrifice of animal has some redemptive aspect there. Um, although uh, most scholars would um, you know they prefer to talk about sacrifice uh, in the context of Abraham sacrificing his son, uh, the Quran doesn't mention the name of of right. his in, sacrifice. In Surah thirty seven, yes. you know, in the Islamic tradition, um, uh, it is often understood as as referring to Ishmael. Yes. Um, wonderful. We we could speak further about that because the tradition of the sacrifice, or of uh, of Isaac in the Book of Genesis, and as mm-hmm. it develops, is um, oftentimes in a way connected to the temple sacrifice um, uh, in Jerusalem. Although, of course, the temple comes along much later. Uh, but in the, I mean, you mentioned that it's not so much a journey 
to mm-hmm. do the Hajj. I mean, it is because you have to take a flight and long you have to get long, to Mecca, right? Okay. Uh, b- before we had airplanes, it was quite a journey and there were caravans that would go from Damascus or North Africa and yeah. other places. Great. So, Munim, you mentioned that in the Islamic understanding of Hajj that the journey isn't really the point. It's mm-hmm. the ritual in, in Mecca. Uh, in Christian tradition, pilgrimage is not a pillar of Christianity or sacrament or something like that, Francesca, but uh, it has its place. Um, what is the importance uh, of pilgrimage in Christian tradition? Okay. Um, in the early days of pilgrimage, pilgrimage begins to become popular 8th and 9th century in uh, in in Europe. And the reasoning behind it is to see the relics of the saint. The relics, which are left behind objects from the saint, particularly his bones, but objects belonging to the saint, they're kept in certain uh, special locations in in pilgrimage churches, which people can journey to. And uh, being in contact with these objects, like the bones of the relics of the saint, are believed to um, to put you in contact with God. So pilgrimage within Christianity is not a sacrament. But it involves sacramental objects, such mm. as the relics of the saints. Right. So in the Middle Ages, uh, Reformation period, uh, uh, 18th, 19th century, people went to walk to places like Santiago de Compostela in order to be in contact with the relics of the saints, which are sacramental objects, and put the, the pilgrim in contact with God. There's no obligation on anyone ever to do a pilgrimage, but um, pilgrimage was really popular in the late Middle Ages. Um, And pilgrimage to Santiago becomes rarer and rarer after the Reformation, and then has a huge outpouring, a surge of of popularity in the past 20 years. John Paul II um, said, let's go, let's do the pilgrimage to Santiago. He encouraged it, and the Spanish government complied, and the EU got involved. And so today, more than 100,000 people a year walk to Santiago from various points in Europe. They walk from all over Europe. And I think that today the point of the pilgrimage to a place like Santiago is the journey. I mean, I'm not saying that to be contradictory. I have been on the pilgrimage to Santiago now 13 times. I've entered Santiago as a pilgrim, as pilgrim eight times. And um, if you talk to pilgrims on the way, um, only a few weird old eccentrics are going in order to see the relics of St. James. Okay. Uh, most people believe that somehow the pilgrimage is a microcosm of life. And doing the pilgrimage changes them in some way. They learn to suffer. I mean, it's terribly painful walking that far. So, and I met Buddhists doing the pilgrimage to Santiago. There are two barefoot Tibetans doing the pilgrimage to Santiago one year. And you meet many people who are recently divorced or going through some kind of life change. And nearly all pilgrims are doing it for the sake of the journey which they understand as somehow symbolizing a change in their life. Like in the Old Testament, it says many times to turn, 
teshuva or return to the Lord. So in some way, the pilgrimage is a symbol of a turning point mm. in someone's life, mm. this long journey, this painful walk with many people wear uh, T-shirts that say things like uh, uh, no pain, no glory, and they're all proud of their blisters and hurt feet and so on. So the journey itself really is the point for most modern pilgrims, Catholic or non-Catholic, mm. I think. Mm. Because the journey is supposed to be like a learning curve. Right. And it gives them time to reflect. Um, 30 days or more, I've met people who've come from Berlin, they've been walking for three months met people who've come from Holland, many people who've walked outside their house in Switzerland. So this long journey is a time of reflection and symbolizes this returning or turning point in life. Right. Well, I wanted to follow up and maybe there'll be our last sort of two topics. And maybe I'll just present the topic and ask both of you to um, give your own thoughts and maybe discuss with two other elements of Christian and Islamic tradition, the first being fasting, mm -hmm. which has a scriptural roots um, and uh, the New Testament and the example of Christ and the teaching of Christ, but also in the Quran, uh, connected, of course, in Islamic tradition with the lunar month of Ramadan. Uh, so um, this is another pillar. This is, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, for Islam, is a pillar. Um, so a central element of Islamic ritual. Um, I mean, maybe we'll start with you, Minim, but sure. feel free to um, interject, Francesca, if you'd like. What is the importance of fasting in Islam and Christianity? What are the scriptural roots? What do the Quran and the Bible have to say about this? Yeah, the Quran recognized that, you know, um, that, that fasting um, was prescribed for people before before Muhammad. So when, when the Quran... Uh, describe the prescription of, of, of fasting. It says that uh, all believers, fasting is prescribed uh, for you as it was prescribed for people before you. So the Quran recognizes that fasting has been prescribed for uh, people uh, before the time of Muhammad. Uh, in the Islamic tradition, fasting is basically abstaining from uh, food, uh, drink, or sexual activities during the daylight hours. To outsiders, avoiding food or drink for 11 to 18 hours, yes. depending on where you are and what what you know what months uh, you are uh, fasting, yes. Yes. may seem to be like cell of torture. But for Muslim, it is one of the five pillars in Islam. Um, the Quran um, referred to the word sawm or siam in Arabic uh, when talking about fasting. Um, um, the origin of fasting of Ramadan, because uh, this is you know the the, the fasting that is uh, obligatory to Muslim, you know the fast of the, the months of Ramadan, is really complicated. Um, when why Ramadan is the months of fasting? Some scholars argue that the fast of Ramadan is because it was the months in which the Quran was revealed. Right. Uh, the Quran says, "Shahrul Ramadan, Allah the Unzila fihil Quran, the months of Ramadan in which the Quran was revealed." Mm. Although it is not clear, what does this mean? Right. Uh, Literally brought it, down, right? Right. Does it mean that in the, which the whole Quran down. was revealed during the months of Ramadan, or it just reflect, you know, Muhammad 
first experience of revelation it is not clear what what mm. what this this uh, this phrase really mean uh, the second argument that some scholars uh, say why you know muslim fast during the months of ramadan is because this the months in which the battle of badr uh, one of the first uh, battle of uh, victory for muslim took place during the months of ramadan and therefore Uh, according to some scholars, uh, because of the the great importance of of that battle, that Muslim uh, was obliged to fast during the months of Ramadan. So the origin of the fast of Ramadan is 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 really complicated. Um, th- there is another uh, important aspect of 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 the fast of Ramadan is what is commonly known as Laylatul Qadr, the night of destiny. Uh, that according to some scholars, um, it is the night in which the Quran was revealed. Um, Muslim um, often, you know, uh, you know, wake up during the night. Um, um, you know, in the last ten days of Ramadan, uh, because of their belief that this is the night. Uh, in which the Quran um, described as better than a thousand um, uh, months. months. Yes. Al Fashar. Al Fashar. <laughs> yes. Uh, great. And Francesca, uh, could you introduce us to fasting in Christian tradition and its importance? Okay. Well, as you know, fasting doesn't mean giving something up. Fasting is not eating food. And um, in that sense, fasting is relatively rare in Christianity. Um, Christians um, in the early church in the first three or four centuries uh, fasted Monday, Wednesday, Friday to remember the crucifixion and the resurrection. Uh, and I mean they didn't eat Monday, Wednesdays and Fridays. Mm-hmm. And then it's diluted into not eating meat at certain times um, so that Christians for many centuries and to this day, of course, in, in orthodoxy, major branch of Christianity, uh, they don't eat meat um, during Lent, um, Advent, uh, the Assumption Fast, which is the first 15 days of August. They're actually vegan in all three of those periods. Um, and it's called the Great Fast. Um, but technically, it's giving up meat. It's not not eating, right? So uh, Christians are much more likely to not eat meat or dairy products than literally to fast. The only common fast within Christendom is not eating before the reception of the Eucharist. Mm. Uh, for Catholics, it used to be 12 hours, and it was taken very seriously. If you've ever met anyone who grew up before the Vatican Council, they um, I, I knew someone who was a little boy before the Vatican Council, and his parents would put sellotape over the, the, the water, over the faucet, so that nobody would have a drink by mistake overnight. Uh, so people used to fast for... 10 to 12 hours before they receive the Eucharist, whereas now it's a one-hour fast before receiving the Eucharist. 
but I don't know how many people literally keep this any longer and priests never remind you of it or talk about its importance. So I think the fact is within Christianity, monks fast. And fasting is kind of an emulation of the monastic way of life. And that's its importance, I would say. And back behind that is Jesus in the wilderness in the 40 days in yes. Lent. Um, so it's not a ritual within Christianity. And it's um, people do give up meat. Uh, but that's not precisely fasting. Yes. I mean, as I understand it, when Muslims fast during Ramadan, they don't eat until um, until sundown. Yes. Yes. Or there was a wonderful uh, curry restaurant uh, near where I lived in Aberdeen in Scotland, and they would reopen, you know, at seven p.m. after the sun had gone down, and everyone would politely queue up and say, "Yes, it's Ramadan." Ramadan, and all these non-Muslims very politely and respectfully observing the observance of the Ramadan fast and waiting for their curry. Um, so um, we know what fasting is, and it's not eating, literally not eating. And that really barely happens at all within Christianity. If you meet a Christian who's fasting, it's more likely to be intermittent fasting because they're overweight much more likely to be intermittent fasting to get their belly fat off than to uh, <laughs> unite themselves with God. Well, uh, I I know my students here at Notre Dame, when we introduce the Ramadan fast, they um, often are filled with not shock at how difficult it is, but admiration uh -huh. for Muslims. Yes, uh, it, it, at people the same really time, do admire and respect it yeah. as a discipline. Yeah, right. well, fasting is, is very personal and private, you know, um, uh, devotion because yeah. nobody knows whether yes. you, you, you fast yes. or not. Yes. But it is at the same time the most feasible because during the, the month of Ramadan, everything changed in the Muslim world. In the Islamic world, yes. Um, you know, the night is become the day where activities taken place. Yes. That they become night because yes. people often, you know, in, you know, in many countries, I don't know day. if it's the case in Indonesia, but in many Arab countries, it's the time when the best soap operas yes. <laughs> are released because people stay up at night watching TV in between their meals. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, maybe one last topic quickly as the time is escaping sure. us, but just for, for both of you, um, when we think of ritual or sacrament, in both um, Islam and Christianity, of course, in Judaism as well, uh, there is occasionally a place for clerics, so uh -huh. imams or priests or ministers in other Christian traditions. Uh, and for certain traditions and certain rituals, they're, they're necessary, can't be done without them. Uh, so could we speak about this a bit? I mean, how important is the role of the imam to Islamic ritual and for sacraments? Uh, Francesco, if you could introduce us afterwards to the importance of a priest, the necessity of a priest. Yeah, Islamic rituals are often seen as non-clerical, uh, at least uh, by outsiders, right? Because um, you know anybody can perform prayer uh, by by their own. Uh, you don't need an imam to perform prayer. 
But in reality, especially in the context of Pradip Praya, the, the presence of Imam is still necessary because you cannot perform your prayer without, without the Imam who not only lead the prayer but also deliver the, the khutbah, the, the sermon. So in the sense, yes, it is true that Islamic ritual of prayer is non-clerical, but in the context of uh, Friday prayer, although it's not you know, you know, similar to the rule of cleric in Christianity, but still you cannot perform prayer without without the imam. So uh, in the, the sense- The Friday right, congregational the Friday prayer. prayer. Yes. Uh, Friday prayer as well as uh, you know uh, collective prayer mm-hmm. because um, uh, although uh, you know prayer can be performed individually but it is still recommended to be performed in in in, in, in collective yeah and Francesco in Christian tradition yes I mean the conversation reminds me of this um, often overquoted a statement by Flannery O'Connor where she's asked about the meaning of the Eucharist and the people that she's with say they think it's a really important symbol and so on. And Flannery O'Connor says, if it's a symbol to hell with it, Hmm. uh, it's often quoted, um, if the Eucharist is a symbol to hell with it. Mm -hmm. And I think um, that really sums up uh, Catholic thinking about ritual um, if it's just a ritual to hell with it in other words um, as far as priests are concerned okay Christ ordains the apostles and his apostles ordain priests who can um, preside over the Eucharist taking the place of Christ. Uh, They're not necessary for corporate prayer. You can even have Eucharistic services where uh, people who are not priests simply give out the consecrated host. Um, I've presided over Eucharistic services without presence of a priest. Uh, Morning, evening prayer, uh, which are corporate Christian acts take place without the presence of a priest. Um, so corporate Christian devotion doesn't require the presence of a priest. Uh, the Eucharist requires the presence of a priest because only a priest can confect the Eucharist. Um, marriage does not require the presence of a priest because the two people uh, the two the people getting married exchange vows with one another um which penance according to the opinion of albert the great a lay person can perform the sacrament of penance because the shame of, of confessing to a layman is so terrible that it it, 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 it absolves the person confessing from all sins. So that Etienne Gilson, the great medieval philosopher, took a, a, a layman's confession in the trenches in the First World War, reminding himself about what Albert the Great had said. Hmm. It's not common, I should say. A lay person can baptize in extremis. Obviously, only a bishop 
can uh, perform the sacrament of holy orders because it's like tag. Uh, bishops um, uh, um, ordain priests who then, it goes down and on and on back to the first apostles, like a long historical game of tag. Um, the sacrament of extreme unction, I believe, can be performed by a deacon, not by a layperson, but by a deacon. Um, I'm trying to remember the other sacraments. Um, well, there's confirmation if uh, we wanted to add one. Confirmation surely must be uh, performed by the bishop. Right. And I think that's part of drawing people into the body of Christ. Right. Um, so um, you would think that priests as mediators were completely central to the practice of Catholicism and Orthodoxy. And of course, in many ways they are because of the Eucharist. But at the same time, collective prayer is perfectly possible. It happens every day to this day in Anglican cathedrals. They gather for evening prayer. And what you really need for Anglican um, evening prayer is a good boys choir. You don't need an Anglican priest. Wonderful. Well, I think we're we're just about out of time. So thank you, Francesca. Thank you, Munim. Friends, thank you for joining us. Be sure to be with us for the next episode of Minding Scripture, where divine word and human reason meet. <laughs>